The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, it is no newsflash to say that 2020 has been a tough year. As we begin to track the, the casualties, the impact of 2020, one survey that I read recently really caught my attention, saying that pastors are among the casualties of 2020. So many pastors burning out, widespread fatigue, many saying they don't feel like they're going to last, many who have quit, and they said the number one reason was the polarizing response to different issues that people in the church have had polarizing responses to things like government regulations, whether or not to wear a mask, polarizing responses to political tensions, whether you're Republican or Democrat, polarizing tension because of race relations and everyone having a strong opinion on what the problem is or what the solution is, and pastors feel like they're getting caught in the crossfire congregationally of different people in the church that they're trying to pastor and love. The survey was discouraging to me for a number of reasons, but perhaps the biggest reason is that we're in 1 Peter, and it is the polar opposite vision of what 1 Peter gives. In 1 Peter, you don't see the problem being the infighting of the church, you don't see alienation and hostility between people in the church. What you see is social hostility and alienation from the world directed to the church. And Peter says the only remedy for that social alienation and hostility coming from the world is the genuine fellowship to be found in the family of Christ. This is not a time to splinter. This is a time to unite, to celebrate what we have together. And so the way that Peter lays this out in this passage is he says Christian conduct is going to look distinctly different. It's going to look a certain way in the church. We'll see that in verse 8. And it's going to look different outside the church, verses 9 through 12. So that's the outline. He starts by saying, he sums up, you can see it there in verse 8, finally. He's taking us on a summary of chapter 2, verse 11, all the way to here, chapter 3, verse 12. And he's summarizing what he's been saying. So we need to understand this as a summary that helps us get our bearings for what we should do in a world that's often hostile to Christians. I want to read the text, I want to pray, and I want to state the main point, and then we'll walk through the outline. Here's the text, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. 
Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray. So, Father, here we come. We come into your presence, and as we just sang, in all of our sorrows, Jesus is better. Make our hearts believe it. Make our hearts believe now, trust now, receive now. You really are better. There really is nothing else that I desire in this world that is better than Jesus. Our hearts, our flesh may fail, but you, you are the strength of our hearts and our portion forever, and how we need you to be the strength of our hearts now. Make us believe, make us taste that Jesus is better, and make us one by giving us that savoring together. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's the main point of verses 8 through 12. I'm going to say it a couple of times because it's a little involved. Here's the point. Christians show family love. That's an important phrase. Christians show family love to those in the church. So that would be verse 8. Christians show family love to those in the church. And now verses 9 to 12. And they are called to obtain an eternal blessing as they offer blessing to those outside the church rather than retaliate. I'm going to say that second part again. Verses 9 to 12 are surprisingly tough. They are called to obtain an eternal blessing as they offer blessing to those outside the church rather than retaliation. So let's look at this together. You'll see exactly what I mean as we go. You look at verse 8 first. What you see is Peter calls us to these five things. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, humble mind. These terms, these values or virtues are what the Christian community should look like and taste like. I can remember growing up, my dad would often come home from work, six o'clock or so, put something on the grill, put it really high heat so it would get done fast, and little did I know, it would dry the meat out. So when I started, I actually was, I think we were in uh, Louisville at the time, I was working, no, we were in Minneapolis. I was, I was working as a meter reader, we got this free grill. And this free grill, little did I know, didn't have a very good burner, and so everything had to be made on low heat. So I discovered low and slow by accident. And I discovered that the meat tasted so much 
better. And I was like, where has this been all my life? And then I started discovering like flavor profiles. If you have different flavors, they come together and it's like worshiping your mouth. So as I'm discovering this, one of my favorite desserts I started making is called smoked strawberry parfait. I apologize for the drooling up front. Okay, smoked strawberry parfait, you have like the trinity of different profile flavors. You have sour, you have sweet, and you have smoky. So you have the strawberries and you, you make them in, in sugar so they caramelize and then you put them on a cedar plank so that they're smoky and then the parfait has lemon zest and sour cream and you have sugar in there so you've got sour, sweet, smoky. It, it is devastating. It is so good. Now, what Peter is calling us to is to have this kind of flavor profile to be part of the church, not just one thing. In fact, there's a symmetrical structure to this. This is a, what we would call a chiasm. You notice there are paired things together. He starts with humility of mind and like-minded. So unity of mind and humility of mind, those are paired beginning and end. Then you have sympathy and tenderness of heart. So you move from mind to heart to what? Love. That middle term is what everything is moving towards. So let's do that. Let's start with what is he talking about with the Christian mind and then the Christian heart and then what it looks like in terms of love. So we start with the, the mind. Notice he has the, the first and last word. They share the same root, mind, in, in both in English and in the original language. And then a prefix is added to tell us what type of mind. And the first term he uses is one to be like-minded, same-minded, unity of mind. And this word was so important in the first century because this like-mindedness was a very prized virtue because it caused community to have cohesiveness. If you wanted a community to cohere together, unite together, you had to become like-minded. Now, what's happening here, though, is Peter is calling this church to something different, not to become conformed to the pattern of the thinking of this world, but for Christians to have a Christian mind as citizens of heaven that's not going to be conformed to the like-mindedness of the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of the mind, the Christian mind that's going to think in a way that Christians ought to think, to be governed by the Scriptures and by the Word of God, that Christians together have a Christian mind, a uniquely Christian way of looking at the world and looking at eternal life and looking at Jesus and looking at one another. So actually what was such a sought-after virtue Christians have, but it's one that subverts the world, world order to say we think differently than the rest of the world. Christianity today is a minority culture in our world. We think differently and therefore must stick together, creating this cohesiveness. And yet, 
the next term that he uses, the prefix is not, it creates high-minded people who are like, look at us, we're better than others. It creates low-mindedness, humble-mindedness. And this is extremely countercultural because this was not a virtue. This was seen to be a vice in the first century. I was reading one commentator who said it this way. In the highly competitive and stratified world of Greco-Roman antiquity, that is in the Roman world, only those of degraded social status were humble. Humility was regarded as a sign of weakness and shame, meaning an inability to defend one's honor. That was lowliness of mind. It meant you were weak and couldn't defend your honor. Thus, the high value placed on humility by Christians was utterly remarkable. This was not seen as virtue in the first century, but as a vice. And now Peter's saying what must characterize the Christian community is that we're like-minded and that we're low-minded. Now, what that means is not, as C.S. Lewis says, that you think less of yourself. It's not like it's shaming yourself, degrading yourself. It's that you think of yourself less often so that you can focus somewhere else more often, namely on Christ. You realize it's not all about me. I'm in the family of Christ together, focused on Christ, and therefore, it doesn't always have to be focus on me. That's what these virtues are going against, this self-preoccupation, self-fixation, saying you have the ability as a Christian to be so focused on Christ and what he's done that you can actually get outside of your own bubble and begin thinking about others. That's exactly where he goes next. Notice the two pairs, sympathy and tenderness of heart. These things require that you have to get outside of your own bubble and think about the fears and hurts and challenges and situations of others. You have to enter into their world, which means you gotta get out of your own little world. These are really picturesque terms. The term sympathy literally means to feel with, to suffer with. It's a word for community, meaning you're outside of your own bubble, you're in life with others and you feel what they feel. You, you know what they know, you, you see and feel their struggles, you're with them as part of a family. So you're having sympathy and then the second word, tenderness of heart, is even more picturesque. It's the word explachnoi, splanknos, meaning it's your gut. Splanctology is where we get this word from. It's the study of your gut. It means you don't feel things for others in the Christian family, just like some surface feeling. It means from the very depths of you, you feel with them, you ache with them. There's a tenderness 
He's talking, like, have you ever had a stomach ache because you've thought about something so much, worried about something so much, felt so strongly about something? It means you, you ache. You feel it viscerally from the gut. That's what Peter's calling the Christian family to. You ache for one another. When someone's going through something, you're not insensitive to it. You're not unaware of it. You ache with them. You weep with those who weep. You rejoice with those who rejoice. You're in it with them, which means you have to be outside of your own bubble to be in it with them. And what does that lead to? That leads to something wonderful because this word now for love is the word for brotherly love, but this word for tender heart or compassion is also a family term, uniquely family term. So when we think, for example, of compassion, we tend to think, oh, we can have compassion for those who were victims of a flood or a hurricane or something like that, and we're compassionate towards that. That's not the way the first century used the word compassion. It was a word uniquely used for family members. You can feel something for people out there, but there's a unique family compassion that you have for kinship. And what Peter is saying is, you're going to feel like family together, and therefore you're going to ache together. You're going to have a compassion for them like you would your own kin because you've been brought together in Christ. You've been born again. We have the same Father, you have the same Spirit, you have the same Lord. It's made you a family, and this is a call to feel it, live it, walk it out, and it leads to brotherly love, family love. Notice how you move from the mind to the heart and then to the overflow of it practical action. Love cannot be confined to having good feelings towards one another because as First John says, if you see a brother or sister in need and you have the world's goods and you close your heart to them, how does the love of God abide in you? Little children, let us not love in word and tongue only, but also in action and truth. If you think this way and feel this way, you're going to act this way. You're going to overflow with practical expressions saying, I love you. You're going to do things that look like and feel like love because you're in touch with the needs of your family. Now, he here's the application. Here's why this is so hard. It was already countercultural in the first century to regard a community other than your kin as your kin, as your family, adopted into God's family. That was already countercultural. But now here in the West, it's doubly countercultural. Because in the West, we have an emphasis on the individual. And this requires a community-type focus. It requires, rather than being committed to my own convenience 
and evaluating things based on whether it will inconvenience me or not, will it benefit me or not. This is saying there's going to be a conformity of mind and heart and will to the flourishing of the Christian family over and above your individual convenience. When we gather, we're not gathering as a collection of individuals. We're gathering as God's family. And therefore, there's going to be a conformity of the mind and the heart and the will to say, what can I do to see Christ's family here flourish? So when you hear a call like in this week's email to volunteer at the nursery, suddenly you hear that differently. You hear that as a call, not how much will this inconvenience me. You hear it as, what can I do for the flourishing of this family? It's a different way to think and feel and act, and it's distinctively Christian. Second, this is the way we're supposed to conduct ourselves inside the church. What about outside the church? Verses 9 through 12. What we have here is just these three movements. He starts with this calling to give a blessing, but then he moves to this calling to obtain a blessing. And then he's going to prove all of that from Psalm 34. So look with me at verse 9 first. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. We'll just take that much first. Notice that Peter calls us to a certain kind of life, not a life of retaliation, of tit for tat, hurt for hurt, but of blessing. And what you need to understand is that in this situation in the first century as an honor and shame culture, it really helps us understand what the weapons of the world were that they were using. One commentator said it just right. The expressions of hostility were insult, defamation of character, verbal abuse, and these are the weapons typically employed in an antagonistic honor and shame society for challenging the honor of others, publicly shaming and discrediting those who are different or regarded as one's competitors. Understood this way, if it is human nature to retaliate, like imagine you're in a game of dodgeball, right? You're in a game of dodgeball, you get the ball thrown at you. What is the most natural thing in the world? Pick up the ball, throw it back at them, right? He's saying this is going to be totally contrary to human nature to have something thrown at you and to drop it. To not throw it back. To not revile back. To not defend one's honor. And not only does it go against human nature, it went against the cultural expectation. Remember, humility was a sign of weakness of not defending one's honor. So here, people are attacking their honor, verbally assaulting them, and they don't fight back. 
But it's not just a drop the ball. Don't throw it back. You're throwing something back. But it's kindness. It's blessing. Let's understand something. In view of the society expectation that you are going to retaliate, when you don't, there is something inexplicable that happens to people. When you're on Facebook and somebody says something and you don't like and they direct it towards you, it doesn't take much to have keyboard courage to lob something back. What will be inexplicable is if kindness comes back if courtesy comes back. You need to understand, this is evangelism, dear friend. This is what Peter's calling us to about in chapter two, verses 11 to 12. You're gonna show the excellencies of Christ, put this beautiful behavior on display so that some will glorify God, some will be converted by this. This is part of your witness. In a world that is so tit for tat, Lob for lob, hurt for hurt, defending honor all the time. To lay down, reviling in return, and to lob back blessing, kindness, respect. As Titus said, perfect courtesy. This will look like it's coming from another world. And it is. It's coming from citizens of heaven. And the world is going to look at that and not have a category for it. And then, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3, you're going to have an opportunity to give an answer to the hope that's in you when people ask, what is this? This is evangelism. This is part of our witness We avoid this get-even mentality. It doesn't take any Holy Spirit power, any special grace of the new birth to retaliate. It takes Holy Spirit strength and the new birth to not lob back curse, but to give back blessing. And that is exactly what Christ did. As Peter said at the end of chapter two, he didn't revile. He kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. You're gonna look like Jesus in doing this. And that means that when we talk about this type of behavior, we show respect and honor to everyone. That's what he said. You show it to tyrants like Nero, chapter two, verse 17. You show honor, respect to unjust people who don't deserve it, masters. Chapter two, verse 18. You show it to unbelieving husbands. Chapter three, verse two, or you can go on and on. Deadbeat dads, whatever it is. There's respect and honor where you don't give people back what they deserve, but blessing, kindness. Now, that's the call to offer blessing. Why would people live like that? Where does this mindset come from? What is this motivation from within when everything in you just wants to lob it back? 
that you would drop it and have kindness in return. You understand something, Peter says. You're on the road somewhere. That as you offer blessing, you understand you're on the road to obtain blessing. Don't take my word for it. Read it. Verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. He really means this word. He doesn't say earn a blessing. That would be like works righteousness. He's saying if you respond the way the rest of the world does, you're probably going where the rest of the world is. It's going to be totally different for a Christian to be on this road receiving hostility and giving back blessing, and it's going to be saying something. You're from another world, on the way to another world. The way that you can tell that someone's a Christian, Peter says, you can tell by their tongue. You can tell who is sold out for eternal life on this road by the way you talk. And to prove it, he goes to Psalm 34. Look at verse 10. For, that is, how do you know you're going to obtain a blessing? For whoever desires to love life and see good days. Christians that that love life, eternal life, and want to see the prolonging of eternal days. That's us. So what do we look like? Look at the tongue. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Remember, Peter has already alluded to Psalm 34 in chapter 2, verse 3. Taste and see that the Lord is good. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. He's not just quoting this now out of context. You remember David is on the run, outside of the promised land, escaping with his life. And he's now in front of a a foreign ruler, and this is Abimelech in the superscription, change his behavior before Abimelech. What does he do? How does he act? How does he live? This psalm is coming out of that, being in exile. In fact, if you look at the Greek version of this, we hear, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me, Hebrew says, from all my fears. The Greek translation says, from all of my sojournings, all of my time in exile, all of the fears that come upon me when I feel like I'm living in a foreign land. It's not not familiar. Here I am. All these fears are piling up, and the Lord delivers me one by one from them during my time of exile, during, during my sojourn. And what do, I, what do I look like when surrounded by fears? I'm keeping my tongue from evil. I'm not lashing out in return. I'm speaking blessing. I'm doing good. So here, notice, this is not, let me just stop and close a couple of sheep gates here. So I think this is really important. Someone could hear this and think, okay, what I'm supposed to do is not retaliate 
which means I just open myself up to all possible suffering that could come my way. I just want to slam that sheep gate shut, okay? Not retaliating does not equal reckless endangerment. It doesn't mean that you just always take everything and just stand there. David didn't. That the whole context of the psalm was David in danger, sparing his life, not letting his son kill him, or earlier, not letting Saul spear him. He's not saying, okay, I'm not going to retaliate, which means I'm just going to stand here and let Saul spear me. That's not the context. It's not the context even with the Apostle Paul. Sometimes he could go into a city and know that they were going to stone him, know there was going to be hostility, and take it. Other times he could be let down the other side of the wall at night. It does not mean that you don't take steps to protect yourself in some way. Like if you're in danger constantly, you don't just say, well, I'm supposed to expose myself to as much of it as possible. No, 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 no. It's saying in these contexts, especially the ones that you can't escape, you don't retaliate. Sometimes it's going to mean getting out of that conversation. Sometimes it's going to mean walking the other way. Often it will mean speaking back blessing, speaking back kindness. And when you do that, The only way that you can is to understand that, here's the other sheep gate I want to shut hard, not retaliating does not mean I don't care about justice. I don't ever seek justice. He's speaking of times when you can't see justice brought. It's not promised that in this life there's going to be perfect justice brought to bear, but there is for the final judgment. And therefore, you're able to never take vengeance into your own hands, but leave room for the vengeance of God. And this is exactly what Paul said when in the same context, Romans 12, he says, don't curse back, bless. Why? This is Romans Chapter 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, now this is kindness. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. In other words, it's never a winning strategy to try to beat evil with more evil. It can only be overcome with good. And this fits what Peter's saying with wanting to see people glorify God on the day of visitation by keeping your conduct pure and good, what does it mean? Either as you do them good and give them drink and give them food, their eyes are going to be open to the excellency of Christ and they're going to become converted and worship Him with you forever, or it's going to heap coals of judgment on them for the final judgment. Either way, 
you're free. You don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to take vengeance. You can entrust it to the Lord. That's Psalm 34, and you know it because you read the very end. Look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You don't need to be against them. The Lord is, and he will bring perfect justice if they don't repent. I think that's so important because sometimes the biggest mistake that we make when we retaliate is we're trying to play the Holy Spirit. We're trying to bring conviction with the force of our words and we realize it's got to be in God's hands. I am going to respond with kindness. And isn't that what the Lord does? His kindness leads us to repentance. So here's how I want to close. I want to think about what this means for us and then how this will look practically in sanctification. First, what needs to happen for us as Christians is that we're going to have to make a change. In this country, we have been used to a certain moral majority a certain background and context that some people call Judeo-Christian ethics, that day is done. And shaming and mockery was never a good strategy, but today it's even less so. To fire back angry words at people that you disagree with when the Christian ethic is clear about we're, we're not for homosexuality, we're not for transgender, we're, when people say we hate submission and all these things, that Christian ethics says this is what we believe, and when we get hatred back, we don't return reviling to homosexuals, Muslims, atheists, people on the other side of the political aisle. We don't turn up the volume on our antagonism Turn up the volume of kindness, respect, honor, love. How you treat the people with whom you disagree is one of the biggest indicators of whether you're a Christian or not. It doesn't take any special grace to love those who love you. That's what Jesus said. It only shows the love of the Father when you can show enemy love. He causes his reign to fall on the just and the unjust, which means you're called to speak blessing not just to the politicians you agree with, but the ones you disagree with. You're called to show blessing not just to the family neighbors who align with you, but the ones who scorn you. You're called to be kind to the neighbors, not just the ones that are kind to you, but the ones that are curmudgeons and never seem, never, it's never enough with them. You're called to bless people like not just the respectful wife and the kind husband, but the disrespectful wife, the insensitive husband. This takes the strength of the Holy Spirit to do this. Now, why would a Christian look like this and live like this? Don't think to yourself now, 
okay, what I've got to do then when people have angry things to say to me or scornful things and I want to, I want to rise up and defend myself, fire back, what do I do? Do I just say, don't. I shouldn't do that. Just say no. That is not going to work at all. In terms of New Testament sanctification, you're called to put off a certain way of life, like, like a pair of clothes, and put on Christ. Have you ever worn clothes that you got really dirty in and they were just disgusting and you just couldn't wait to take them off and shower and put on new clothes? This is the Christian life. We can't wait to put off that worldly way of reacting. We're called to put on Christ. How? Think about the teaching of Christ. Think about the life of Christ. Think about the mind of Christ. All three of those you see right here in this text. The teaching of Christ, he's the one that told us this. Luke chapter six, woe to you when all people speak well of you. That's what their fathers did to the false prophets. If you expect everybody's gonna speak well of you, then you're not taking Jesus seriously. He said it's not gonna happen. You're not gonna be liked by everybody. Deal with it. And I say to those who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Peter's just taking Jesus' words here and saying, it's still true. This is still what Jesus says. But there's even more power, not just in the words of Jesus, but the life of Jesus. When you say, okay, what does it look like? What's the example? Peter says he's already given it. 1 Peter 2, 22, he committed no sin Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What you see in the life of Christ is an invitation to move away from the world and more into who Jesus is. You get to experience fellowship with him. When you don't take that ball and throw it back, Jesus is saying, I've got a better way. Come to me, learn from me, watch me, live with me. Keep entrusting yourself the way that I did. And when you stop and don't lob back, what I want you to think of every time is, feels a lot like the gospel. If God treated you according to a get even mentality, Where would we be? That's why he says, obtain a blessing means you're on the road to heaven because you've already tasted the way that God treated you. And it wasn't this way. When he should have destroyed us forever and he treated us with everlasting kindness with the riches of Christ, it changes us. It changes the way that we think and feel and want to live because we're so attracted to that, the excellencies of Jesus that we can't help it but show it. 
This is what my Savior did, and it is my great honor to show it to you in the hope that you'll see it and love it too. This is gospel retaliation, blessing back, kindness back. But it really is the mind of Christ that shows us all of this. That word for lowly-minded is the same word that Paul uses when he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The mind and the heart and the will that Peter's calling us to is Jesus's. This is the way that he thought. When he's in glory, he takes on the form of a servant to serve us with salvation, the very ones that opposed him and scorned him. When Jesus looked upon people who were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, he didn't scorn them and mock them. He had this same word, compassion, on them. When he saw us at our weakest, he didn't want to scorn or shame. What we're told in Hebrews 4.15 is that Jesus is the high priest who can sympathize, same word, sympathize with our weaknesses. In other words, the only way, dear friends, that you're going to live like this, think like this, feel like this, act like this, is to grow closer to Jesus. Experience more of what he has for you. And rather than trying to magically conjure it up, it's the call to reflect back to others what you're receiving from him. Let's pray. Father, I find myself so undone by all of this. I long so much for us to think this way, feel this way, live this way. And Lord, in all of our sorrow, I pray that we would truly trust your words, Jesus. In this world, we will have tribulation, but take heart, you've overcome the world. The tomb is empty. You promised to come back for us. So I pray that you would help us not to lose heart and not to fight back, but to be those who respond with kindness because we have received everlasting kindness from you. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Five five four one five. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.